What the fuck is up, everybody? I hope you're all having a wonderful day. I know that I am because I got to hang out with Adam Skolnick recently. Adam is an investigative journalist and is one of the most clear thinkers I know. He hits every layer of an idea when he brings it up. And I love people like that because a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And I think that one of the main reasons for so much of the hate and vitriol we feel today is the result of people knowing a little bit about a bunch of different stuff. Uh, And Adam is an antidote to that. He dives deep into the subjects that he covers. He just finished a big story um, on the U.S. prison systems, specifically the women's prison systems. Um, And we talked about that a lot in this conversation. We also talked about a story he did um, on the the Thai cave uh, retrieval of the kids So I learned a lot about that as well um, Highly recommend you check out his work You know he's written for New York Times, Playboy, Outside Magazine ESPN, Men's Health Wired uh, He goes to a lot of foreign countries For months at a time um, On assignment for Lonely Planet As well And um, just a Fucking awesome human Um, And he wrote a book as well that I recommend called One Breath about the life and death of Nicholas Mavoli, who was America's greatest freediver. So get in touch with Adam. I will link to his work below. Thank you, as always, to everyone who donates on Patreon. This is an ad free podcast and I rely on people like you to donate. So thank you to everyone who does. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf to donate and you can get in touch by emailing uh, us at info at kyle.surf or Instagram. That works as well. So that's it for now. Um, If you want to listen to more of Adam, uh, this is our second podcast we did together, and you can go back to episode number 59 to hear more. So with that, my friends, I bring you the great, the wonderful, the extraordinary Mr. Adam Skolnick. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. talk about caves in thailand (laughs) let's talk about it yeah let's not explore them on foot right now no no let's explore them from the safety of this couch here it is it is safe Uh, i love talking about uh dangerous stories from safe places yes well you know that's that's the whole idea is is it's only a good idea if you make it home alive yes Yes. exactly that's the guiding the guiding light of most adventure Dangerous Stories from Safe Places with Kyle Tierman. <laughs> <laughs> I tell I like you, that. tales of adventure 
on beanbag chairs while getting foot massages. That is totally happening right now. New TV yeah. show. I've just hired new foot massagers, so just let me know. You fill out uh, an evaluation. Okay. Yeah, I'm, on your I'm way out the it. door. Yeah I, yeah, I haven't had a foot massage while podcasting before, but uh, yeah. Well, you know, we try good. to we try to please the podcast of, hosts that, that drop by. I'm a big fan of foot massages. There's this spot near my house uh-huh. called China Foot Massage. Okay. It's behind a gas station. Hmm. Good place. There's a man named Michael in there. He, uh, he's Chinese, has very strong hands. I request him every time. Yeah. And um, I don't know what I would do without Michael. Actually, <laughs> we've developed a very close bond very quickly. Uh-huh. And uh, that's interesting because most I, I athletes love don't have, uh, have great feet. Yeah. Poor Michael. Yeah. <laughs> you love Michael. I love Michael. Well, you sit down. It's like in a, it's a massage uh, parlor where you're in a group setting. Yes. So there's like six group, chairs. Group foot massages are so much hotter. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you sit down and there's a little bucket of hot water that you put your feet into. Course, it softens them up for Michael's. Like Michael, need, like Michael needs that. <laughs> like he yeah. needs that. That's for you. It's yes. not for Michael. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, ta- uh, caves in Thailand. Caves in Thailand. There's a lot of them there. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been to Thailand? No, never been to Thailand. Oh, wow. Been to Indonesia quite a few times. Yep. Never Thailand. I would love to Not that to many go. waves in Thailand. That's why, probably. No, but yeah. uh, it's a good jumping off point. I mean, Phuket has waves. Yep. In, the winter, in their wet season, which is now. So Phuket actually gets nice surf. Uh, but you know, it's not really what it's known for. Yeah. I have a buddy, a close friend of mine who works for surfer magazine named Ryan Craig, who is living in Thailand now as a staff photographer for surfer. Yeah. And he just travels all the time because there's so many amazing places, uh, close to Thailand that have waves. Right. He can just have that be his home base. Exactly. Isn't he Bangkok or something? Uh, I don't know where he, where he is. Because if you want, I mean, Phuket in the winter does get like, re- you know, it gets overhead. They have surf contests. Really? Yeah. What kind of wave is it? Oh, you don't know. No, I don't know. Something. Yeah. Oh, you mean, is it a reef break? Yeah, or, reef yeah, break. yeah, they have all sorts. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. I would yeah. want to go for the culture, cultural experience more than anything. Um, I think the w- ones I know in, in Phuket are, uh, there's reef and then there's also point break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um. I value cultural experiences more and more as I get older. I'm lucky enough that I've been able to travel for quite a few years now. Yeah. And um, I had an experience recently. I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining, but I went down to uh, Nicaragua for my brother's bachelor party. Mm. This is right in the midst of all of the protests happening. So we get out of the plane in Managua and we get into a big van and there are student protesters ready to rock with these big uh, potato guns and they put nails in the potato guns uh, to fire them off. It was, it, you know, full on uh, protests happening there. I think yeah, that's six, pretty full on. It's pretty full that's on. That's a protest. Like, like six people died while we were right, there. Right, I know, I know but about it. But we take, we took this big um, van three hours down to the beach and then we stayed in this big house and mm. we partied for a week mm. and it was just this a strange um, mental schism that I felt mm. going out and surfing and having a good time. And it was, it was for his bachelor party. So right. I don't know that I would have done it any different, but to, to just be that out to lunch on what was really happening in the place felt strange to me. Well, I think it's a metaphor for how we're always living. We're like a lot of us in the U S um, especially if you have some privilege at all, 
uh, are always living in that big house while people with potato uh, guns are trying their best to fight for some scrap. So, I mean, I think that's always happening. Like, you know, with the family separation thing at the border recently, we're all living in the big house while these people are getting completely fucked. So it's always happening. So you just got a full-on taste of what is always happening, Yeah, in my opinion. I think that everyone tastes it a little bit. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, even... It, that's kind of the hilarity and the tragedy of life is that even the winners lose, right? Even if you get the big house yep. and are in the gated community, you still feel that, and you need to to deal with it, I think, um, and to deal with the the tragedies that we're seeing now, um, we need to, we build up barriers that cause us to lose empathy. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and we justify, uh, being tough on crime and, you know, that we, we, um, segment people into being others. They're over there. We don't care about them. They're different than us. And that's, it's really a coping mechanism to deal with the tragedies that we are not capable of feeling fully. Yeah, we can go super existential with it. I, mean, I think you're right. I think that uh, um, we all feel it. You know, there's the famous Bob Marley quote, uh, some people are so poor, all they have is money. So there's a little bit of that. But at the same time, some people are safer than others, right? And some people have an easier time than others. So it's both. You know, like, yes, there's an existential pain involved, which is manifests itself in all sorts of bad acts or even... Um, lack of empathy or whatever it is and it's exploited by people uh who have an agenda and then there's also the fact that people kind of life is so hard just being a human everyone suffers so that we kind of turn off to some realities so i think all of that is kind of a mix Uh, and when you go into a place as a reporter when i go into a place where you can see it and it's just right there for you it's um, actually a pure place. I think that's why you see war reporters that get addicted to that kind of thing or, or people who just can't stop going into areas that are there is a high degree of injustice or fragility of life because there's something honest about that, you know, in a way. And you feel like you're not kind of just cruising and, 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 and just making your way through life kind of floating because, you know, you get a sense that that kind of consumer-based life doesn't matter as much. So I think... Uh, I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm pretty sure I'm talking about <laughs> my no, own feelings. I, I, it's good. It's good to talk about our feelings. I feel like we're I feel fo- like I wish Michael was here. These these these, mis- these, these, these are these, amateurs. Yeah, we need a foot massage <laughs> yeah. while we're talking about our insecurities. Yeah, yeah. that's how we, that's how we bring yeah. it out on the yeah. show, man. Yeah. Foot massages. Yeah, well, I, you definitely are a person who chases honesty, and a few of the stories that you've been covering, even the last couple months. Uh, are hard hitting, you know, and yeah. the, the prison reform Thanks. story that I read, which was yeah. excellent, um, and the cave story, which I do, I want to yeah, just. Yeah, well, they're both kind of Thailand based. I mean, yeah. I came to both of them through Thailand. So uh, the, more, the more recent one, the one that you're talking about, well, they're both. One is about to be published, which will, by the time you guys hear this, it'll be, it'll out. be out. Okay, so, and where um, can people, and that's on long reads? That'll be long reads. That's cool. the prison story we'll get there. But the, the one that just came out uh, yesterday is the Thai cave rescue. So big news. Everyone heard about it. There was a soccer team, a junior soccer team, 10, 11, 12-year-olds in northern Thailand uh, outside of a, ta- a town called Chiang Rai. 
and that's right on the Myanmar border. And in that border space, there's a lot of migration going on. So there's kids from um, the ethnic provinces of Myanmar that have been, their families historically have been um, kind of suppressed by the main Burmese majority, mostly because of the, uh, not because of the average person in Burma, but because of the um, military dictatorship. So there's a lot of injustice that's there. And some people got chased into Thailand. And uh, anyway, this group of kids, some Thai, some from Myanmar descent, um, they're on the soccer team and they went into a cave, uh, the Tan Luang Caves. In there's a, a forest park, Tan Luang Forest Park in Northern Thailand. And after practice, they went for the cave with their assistant coach. This assistant coach grew up um, as a Buddhist monk, uh, was an orphan, was taken in by Buddhist monks in Thailand and, and uh, had learned meditative techniques. And he's just a, a mentor for these kids, 25 years old. He brings the kids into the cave. So it's not dry season anymore. In dry season, you can walk through these caves uh, a fair bit. They're about 10 kilometers deep. Uh, they were first mapped 30 years ago by a couple of French explorers, dry cavers, um, and they mapped them out. And three years ago, uh, some English geologists uh, corrected a few things, but mostly those original maps were in good shape. And these English geologists corrected a few things. Um, and so that's all dry caving, right? Because in the summer, it's, it's, it's largely dry. There's creek beds in there, but it's largely dry and you're not in any danger. But in the wet season, I mean, this is a, a, a limestone mountainscape area. So there's waterfalls and rivers and just gushing. And when the water sheets down in the tropics, as, as I'm sure everyone who's listening to this can, can imagine, it just starts to pour in the cave from all sides because limestone is so porous and it just starts filling up um, available airspace in these narrow corridors called siphons. And so what happened with these kids is they went in and it was fairly dry and they went into a chamber that they were familiar with and kept exploring and um, a flash flood happened, right? And started to fill up the corridors and cut them off basically. And they, ha they found a spot where they could get some high ground but they went in on the evening of June 23rd and they didn't turn up. And so their parents obviously that night were going nuts, couldn't figure it out. Um, the coach, the head coach knew they had gone to the cave and by the 24th, there was a massive search going on and, and the Navy SEALs showed up, the Thai Navy SEALs who are trained by the U S Navy SEALs, um, in some techniques, but they're, they're basically partners. And, uh, you know, the, the U S Navy SEALs, that's one thing special forces do, right? Special operations do from all the branches of the military, they go overseas and they train their partners in, you know, allied forces, uh, in some of these same techniques. So basically they're the carbon copy of, of, of what our guys do. And, <clears throat> So these are these are guys who are amphibious warriors. They 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 dive. They uh, they you know often they're diving with um, in the first twenty feet of water, but they know how to dive on oxygen where there's no bubbles. They're kind of you know they're not they're not free diving as much. It's it's mostly on equipment, um, but they're the people who who would be called in to try to go into these caves in Thailand. So anyway, an English team of cave divers came in as well, and they were kind of hunting around. So it, it was big news. We all heard about it. On July uh, 2nd, they were finally found. And, it, and you know, by then, a thousand foreign media was there. It was like a big village of 10,000 people had kind of sprouted up in the mud or outside the caves. Uh, Thai civil engineers had come in to dam up the water that was coming in and to pump water out. So that whole village was like all muddy women had shown up and set up like makeshift kitchens and volunteers were looking everywhere for these kids. And, um, 
so that all happened. And then late last week, uh, as this was happening and the kids were being found, because it took a long time from the fact that the moment they were found to the moment they were pulled out, because they had to rehearse away and figure out a way to actually get the kids out. Um, you know, so at that, at that point, once the kids got out, they got everybody out. It was this huge news story international and outside magazine messaged me and asked me if I knew anybody who was involved in the diving operation, the, the, you know, diving cave divers were brought in to assist the Navy SEALs and, and try to find the children. And at the same time, were involved in getting them out. So, uh, I threw a underwater, an underwater photographer friend of mine named Leah Barrett, who's uh, really gifted. You guys should find her um, online if you can. Uh, she connected me with a guy named Ben Raymanence, and he is uh, one of the top cave divers and tech divers in Southeast Asia. And he's based in Phuket in Thailand, a place I used to live. So uh, I was able to connect with, with Ben and heard his story, and, and his story was underreported. So here I am at the desk. There's a you know, thousand media at the gate, at the, at the mouth of this cave. But the problem is, is that um, even though there was a lot of phenomenal reporter ca- reporting coming out of that rescue attempt, the search and the rescue, um, very few people understand the technical diving, right? So I happen to be a tech diver. I'm not a cave diver, but I'm a tech diver, scuba diver, and a certified free diver. Um, but a lot of people who were there just weren't. And so I think this story kind of fell through the cracks because people didn't understand it and because it was, there was so much else going on. But what happened was on the first day of, uh, the search, the Thai seals got about within about a quarter mile, uh, of where the kids were. They got to this third chamber, which ended up becoming divers base camp and suited up and started swimming up a siphon and they got a fair they got up uh, a couple hundred meters up, maybe two to three, four hundred meters up, and uh, they got got to a vortex, which is a T, a T junction. So water was coming in from two sides, and they didn't understand where they were, right? Because you know they weren't looking at a map from the floor. They were swimming near the roof, right? So it's different reading a map from the floor than reading. It's like being a bird in a house, like kind of bouncing around trying to figure out your way. So anyway, they didn't fully understand where they were yet. They're taking compass bearings. They're trying to make maps. Meanwhile, they're fighting you know, pulling on ropes and, and lacing guidelines and, and, and best they can. And they get pushed right and they get pushed into the wrong turn of this T-junction and they end up in this bottleneck. And, um, but they don't know where they are. They come out and they're like, you know, they, they thought they were going to be trapped. They didn't know, you know, it's very dangerous. Cave diving is one of the most dangerous forms of, of, of diving there is. It's the same with wreck diving. You can end up in the wrong place. You can have a line break. You can lose a light. You can end up trapped and gone very quickly it's the most one of the one of the two most dangerous forms of diving with equipment that there is what's the other uh wreck diving wreck diving because wreck diving there's more variables where things can fall on you you know if you end up in the wrong part of a wreck you can't find your way out and you can get trapped that way too so these divers had lines coming in so that they could find their way they would back lace out. their own line right yeah that's what you do as a cave diver that's what you do so Anyway, again, these are Navy SEALs who are very mission-specific in their capabilities of diving. They're not the the best tech divers. They're kind of -of jack-of-all-trade watermen. And so they can do a lot of great things. They can, compared to the average guy, I mean, they're well beyond most people. And and in terms of navigation, they're fantastic underwater navigating. But caving is different. So anyway, they they backtrack. They get out of the bottleneck. They backtrack back. And on their way out... um, 
another storm comes in and another flash flood comes and it wipes out all the progress they've made because when they got to that third chamber they'd seen a pile of backpacks and cleats and footprints so they knew that's why they knew to go up towards that t-junction right that's how they knew to get in there and um anyway that got all wiped out so all their progress got wiped out and now they don't know where they are because a lot of the siphons in between the chambers they've been in are all filled up and they can't get they can't get anywhere and uh the visibility is zero like you get into this mocha water and you can't even see your hand in front of your face so these english uh divers came in first they were brought in by the government and they are among the best cave divers in the world they found a team of uh british soldiers trapped in a cave in mexico the same kind of thing an eight they were gone for eight days and these two guys in 2004 uh found those those soldiers and since then there's been a lot of high profile rescues and recovery missions so these guys are kind of known as the gold standard um, but, uh, one of the liaisons, uh, with the seals, a, a cave diver, a Thai cave diver who works as a consultant for the seals, um, and does seminars for them. Uh, he's been diving with Ben, right? He knows Ben very well. I think he, uh, was trained by Ben in cave diving in some ways. They certainly are dive buddies. And so, uh, he called Ben. You know, he said, because the the English weren't having as much, having any luck, the SEALs weren't having any luck, and they needed somebody else. So, you know, he called the best cave diver he could remember. Ben is uh, 18 years living living in Thailand. He's got a a company called Blue Label Diving, and he is uh, mostly known for deep water diving. So he goes, you know, he's done uh, 200-meter-plus dives in limestone caves on the south coast of Thailand, I mean, mega. He he once had a record for open water. He was the first to the bottom of the Dahab Blue Hole. And so he dives. He's a, he's a tech diving master. Is this free diving or on scuba? Oh, no, this is on. This is on. It's not scuba. So scuba is like what, you know, average Joe will go out and breathe an air tank and strap on one tank and go. But there's a limit to how deep you can go on air. 60 meters, below 60 meters. I mean, 40 meters is really the depth for Patty, which is the typical recreational scuba diver. 60 meters below that, you'll die from breathing air because you have too much oxygen. To go deeper than 60 meters, you need to start breathing helium and other mixed gases. And so to be able to understand how to do that is a whole nother kind of diving, which is called technical diving. And so uh, he's a master of mixed gases, but also of rebreathers. And what rebreathers are, are those James Bond things where your your CO2 gets taken out and, uh, and reconstituted as breathable air or oxygen. So that's what he was on. So that's what he's known for. He gets these rebreathers on, and then you can do four-hour, five-hour dives and and, you know, come back over the course of two hours and not have decompression sickness. I mean, this guy knows everything about it. He used to run the decompression chamber in Phuket. I mean, he knows everything about um, what it takes to dive deep. Uh, but he's also a gifted caver. He discovers caves. He, he, you know, he's an explorer. You know, explorers are the guys that lay line into the caves. They're not the guys that follow the line, yeah. right? And so he'd be the perfect, he has this skill set. He can compliment everybody who's there. Yeah, a girl walks up to him in a bar, says, what do you do? He says, I'm a master of mixed gases. <laughs> well, <laughs> who isn't? <laughs> master of mixed gases. Who isn't? I tell my girlfriend that when I Dutch oven her in the morning. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you? I'm sure she likes that. Master of mixed she, gases, but, You know, I, she, doesn't, she doesn't need to be told that. That's a bit of man's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, continue. So anyway, uh, he gets out there, and uh, everyone knows you need to find this T junction. So now they're fixated. They have the maps, right? So the Thai or the Thai seals are focused on satellite navigation stuff and their own maps. And the English divers and and Ben, who's uh, by the way is Belgian, 
they're focused on what the dry cavers have. And so together they're kind of communicating there. It's a team. And Ben does the first dive alone and he gets out there and he has his own caving reel, which has got one millimeter line. And he, um, he starts to lace it up the cave, but he doesn't know where he's going. I mean, he, he, the first thing he does, he puts on his gear and he flops on the, his back, like, you know, he gets in the water and he flops on his back like a turtle. And the Navy SEALs are looking at him like, this is our fucking savior, this guy. And so he's feeling a lot of pressure, but he, so that first dive is a bit of a disaster. Um, doesn't really get a lot done. But, and what he does do is he's lacing his caving line and he's so far up in what direction he doesn't really fully understand. And he's worried that, you know, he, he's been trying to pull his way through rapids. Basically it's like class three force. Cause he's, of all the water, rushing all in. the water rushing in. And he, he's afraid that that caving line is going to snap. And if it snaps and he's upstream, you know, well, he could be totally fucked. Yeah. Right. So he ends up um, coming back from that dive, feeling like he didn't do anything. And it's a three-hour walk just from the mouth of the cave to where the diving starts. And then they start searching. So and then so then you do a four-hour dive and you come out. I mean, it's a full-on day. And then he gets four hours of sleep and he's woken up and he's back in the water. That's the kind of thing. That's Whoa. the kind of rotation he's on. So after that... Um, and they'd found the kids by this point? No, they have not found the kids. Okay. They're looking for the kids. The kids are trapped. They don't even know if they're alive or dead. You know, they don't know anything about it. The kids are now surviving because this assistant coach is kind of teaching them meditative techniques. They're, they're literally licking the walls of the cave for moisture. This is how these kids are surviving. But nobody knows that yet. They're kind of, they're trapped in their cavern. And so he... Uh, Ben comes out and he, English divers and Ben connect and they say, you know, this is a suicide mission. You know, some of these seals are going to die. One of us, you know, it could be anybody. And so, um, they go to the seal, you know, it's up to Ben who's speaks a little Thai and is a Thai resident. He goes up to the seal command and he says, listen, you know, this is, we don't even know if they're alive or dead and we're going to lose some people. And the seal command said, you know what, you know, basically I'm paraphrasing completely, but what, Ben told me, they said to him was, we can't just let these boys die. You know, that's not, that's not what we're about basically, you know, so we're going to keep looking and you're either going to help us or not, you know, but we're going to keep looking. And so he takes a look at these seals and some of them are 19 years old. They're young. And he's like, you know, these guys, they don't, they're not equipped for extreme cave diving. They don't know what he knows. And he, uh, he says, well, I'm not leaving, you know? So he says, you know, okay, we need to get thicker line and the next day a van rolls up filled with this rock climbing rope 12 millimeter rope and by then one another buddy of his uh joins him and uh they start to string this 12 meter rope and the story i'm writing is really about the the well i wrote excuse me it's out on outside magazine uh so you can you can check it out there but it's really the story of how they found the t-junction and how that led to finding the kids and it's it's really that's what the story is about and uh and and how they did that was to fight their way through this you know torrent of flood water um but it also they were assisted by civil engineers on the outside that did manage to reduce the the water inside the cave network and, and increase visibility somewhat how did they do that through containment dams on the outside and through pumping water from the inside so they're swimming upstream underwater yep, yep. and then one of the seals pops up in one section of the cave yeah not and just the seals, but all the cave divers. All you know, the that's cave how divers. it is. So, so it's, if you picture chambers linked with tunnels. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is. So, the, you know, there's places to breathe. 
without equipment and then you dive down and you try to find your way to the next tunnel though because you're at the roof right you're not the floor so you can't see anything and there's no visibility do you know what the kids and the instructor did to get to higher ground was that were they just in a lucky spot that they didn't yeah they get... found you know the water was coming in and they found a place yeah but they were familiar with the cave Whew. Yeah. you know hollywood writers already working on that script <laughs> exactly i this one is as good as I mean, I don't mean to like trivialize it, yeah. just but it it's a fucking great story, and the way that you told that was riveting. Yeah, yeah. It's it reminds me of like like Sean Connery in The Rock or something. Yeah. Or like, well, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it, it's um, you know, somebody else asked me if I was going to write a book about about this rescue now, <laughs> but it was it's tougher because I wasn't actually there. Right. So the, the challenge for me was actually to report it out from the desk, but it just shows you that. Um, you know, you don't have, you know, it just shows you that there are so many angles that slip through the cracks. And this was a, like a major part of the rescue that hadn't been reported on. And it just so happened I was able to find the guy that did it. And, you know, to, to be able to find that T-junction was critical because even the dive before that, finally making progress and making their way closer and, you know, taking the t compass bearings and realizing, yeah, we actually made progress today. That was a breakthrough. And then from there, the English divers taking over and be able to tie it off to the original seal line that they finally found, locating that. That was a major breakthrough. Dude, so being, was, yeah. and being a novice spear fisherman yeah. myself and having dove in poor visibility conditions, yeah. the fear of diving down and not being able to see your hand in front of your face and the claustrophobia mm. of that experience is like nothing I've ever felt. And now imagine that in a contained environment that's three feet wide or three feet tall and you can't really turn around. At one point, Ben gets stuck in, in a small restriction and he can't move forward or backwards and his buddy has to pull him out for 50 feet an inch at a time against the current. How did they get the kids out? So the, eventually they find the kids, right? Um, and the kids were, were taken out through um, 24 divers and seals lined up from uh, the mouth of the cave all the way through. Uh, actually from chamber three, I think I, from the mouth of the cave all the way through and they were put, they were sedated. So for the, the coach led them in meditation for an hour beforehand. They were taken four, each day was four kids were taken out the first day, four the next day, then five four kids and the coach the last day they were sedated they were placed in um uh sealed kind of uh i don't know what, I, i'm gonna screw up the material because i didn't actually report on that as much but i didn't report on the 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 procedure to get them out at all it was really my story was about the diving to trying to find them but they were uh sealed up in kind of like a raft type material and they were on oxygen and they were submerged through some of the caverns. So it was air, watertight, obviously. They were submerged through some of the caverns, put full face. It wasn't watertight because they had full face masks that the U.S. SEALs brought in. So they were fitted with full face masks. They were sedated ahead of time. Um, and they were uh, submerged through the tunnels and then brought up to the surface and moved through the water or over land wherever, wherever they had to be um, by whoever, you know, a chain of 24 people. All the way out. Why did Elon Musk f pop up in my feed in this story too? Do you know much about that? Yeah. Beat. So, um, I mean, I, again, this is not what I covered, but uh, you know, Elon Musk. So once the once the kids were found on July second, it became the riddle of how to get them out. Right. That was a riddle. So how do you get these kids out? They haven't been eating. Uh, when they were found, their their 
uh, leg muscles were, were basically inert. You can't, some of them couldn't even swim. You're not going to teach them how to scuba dive. You're not going to teach them how to scuba dive with no visibility. You're not going to teach them how to cave dive. You have to be able to get them out somehow. So he knew that, and he, I think, apparently knew the dimensions of, of what they were dealing with, or he had some idea, because he came up with this kind of one single-person submarine that could be operated by other divers and then carried out. It's not too different than the theory that they ended up using. Obviously, the materials are different, and the weight is a lot different. But the idea was to seal them up in a watertight space, have an oxygen mask over them. They didn't do a watertight space. Like I said, they, they had full face masks, so, and they were in a more flexible kind of compartment. Um, but in terms of like how wide these various tunnels were, they weren't, they weren't very wide, but I think that, that what he ended up coming up with, you know, uh, would have worked personally. When I first heard Elon Musk getting in and out, I thought it was kind of a douchey move and he was looking for like, hooray for me type PR. And I didn't, I didn't think it was that great of an idea, but having talked to Ben, Ben actually thought, I mean, they got, they, there were all sorts of kooky ideas. Someone said, put them in a, in a condom type uh, contraption. And there were all sorts of cookie ideas being brought in from the outside. And, 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 Elon's, and that's when Magnum condoms got and, involved. Exactly. <laughs> and Elon's was one of the less kooky of the cookie ideas. And, um, if they didn't have any success pumping water out of the, of the tunnels, the siphons, then there could have been a scenario where it may have worked, you know? So, um, I can't dismiss it based on what I, me talking to the divers that were there, the divers that were there weren't poo pooing it. I think word came out that it was impractical. I think it was impractical for the conditions at that time and what they were doing. And it wasn't going to be something to do. I thought, I think the fact that he had SpaceX engineers on it, they put together this thing and in a, in a day or two, they came up with it, you know, they manufactured this and it worked. Um, and he, you know, flew it over there. I mean, you, it's, it's easy to hate on some of the stuff that Elon Musk does. I can't really fully hate on that one. Yeah, but also we're in a time where so much power is going to private companies. Yes. That you're, it's good to see private industry stepping up for the good of the public more and more. I think we're going to see that more and more. As And it might not be Elon Musk with SpaceX. It might be another company that right. donates a ton of their product or, or you know, they have, yeah. they just have so much well, because more power, resources. Because power has been ceded to them. Exactly. I actually think the opposite should happen and we should fucking rein those motherfuckers in. Yes. Yeah. I actually don't want power to be ceded to corporations. I don't like the idea of us worshiping corporations. I think that we all do. We all have these computers and, and pads and phones and we, you know, these, we, we are all, the tablets, everything. We're all, we're all stoked on Apple and we're stoked on, you know, I, I think they all, um, have their own best interests at heart and couldn't give a shit about any of us. And that's how I really feel. And so I, I, th I think Elon has his heart in the right place with kind of electric cars and all that. I'm hesitant to put anybody on a pedestal. I think we need to rein them all in. And, uh, that's where I come down on it. And I, I think I, I yeah. largely agree yeah. with you. Yeah. And I, yeah. I was having a conversation with, uh, a journalist named Abby Martin the other day who mm. I had, had on my show. And I said, you know, she was explaining to me the difference between corporations and governments is that corporations don't have any constitutions. So by, for example, privatizing military, there's just no, they're not beholden to anyone besides their shareholders. Right. So I think that, look, I don't think that it's companies are inherently bad, but um, I watched a great documentary that illuminated a lot of this for me recently called um, Requiem for an American Dream. Uh, it's interviews with Noam Chomsky. 
And he talks about how corporations are essentially externality machines. They will do anything that they can to externalize costs and um, force the public to pay the price of that. Hmm. Now, I think that what SpaceX is doing largely is great because they're helping to get us off of fossil fuels. Yeah. But, you know, you get a company like ExxonMobil or Nestle, you know, the, the company that has... That, that shits out waste that then we all have to deal with and then ha- they have so much power that we can't do anything about it and we're in for a very ugly future. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in the near future portion of that already. I mean, I think, uh, look at the health of the oceans. Um, there's cer- certain things that we have to hold ourselves responsible to. You know, like I just read today, there's a report out that soon uh, the way we produce food is going to far exceed uh, the pollution that oil and gas the oil and gas will no longer be the number one p- polluter it'll be the way we eat um, look at look at the way meat is raised uh, and uh, you know you and I were talking about the cornfields and you look at all of that and uh, algae blooms and fish kills and and uh, the destruction of reefs and it's all connected to that and um, we have to ask ourselves some tough questions what are we going to do how are we going to prioritize our choices uh, but, you know, it would be easier to to set down some standards, environmental standards, if they weren't being eroded by corporations controlling um, the state houses and the federal government and governments around the world. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're completely on the same page. Yeah. And uh, any time that we we cede power to corporations, they're going to do what's best for the corporation and the shareholder. And that's really what it comes down to. And now we live in a world where... We don't really even have a middle class. I mean, even in America, middle class used to mean equity. It used to mean that you owned something. It used to mean that you are, as you grow old, what you own might actually, um, you know, you might actually get more value out of it. It could, you know, you're, you're going to accrue equity. Um, most people now, what we have is uh, we have a consumer lifestyle that looks like we have middle class lifestyle. We have the trappings of middle class, but most of us are in debt. Most of us don't have equity. Even people that own homes, most of that stuff is we're in debt on those homes. We're, we're underwater on our mortgage. So what we have is this this illusion of middle class life because we have comfort and we have all the trappings, but we don't have any of the equity. So um, not any. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to overblow it. But uh, but we're trending into that into that area, and uh, that's where we are. Right, and we also have politicians that sell us on emotion, but then don't. Um, but then the policies that they enact are contradictory to what they tell us they want to do. Right, right, right. right. So uh, you know, for example, um, you know, taxes have raised on the middle class. Like, for example, um, this is in uh, this doc, um, Requiem for an American Dream, talk about how uh, since the 1970s, taxes on um, stuff that everyone buys, like uh, income tax and um, uh, the stuff that, that it, I'm going to kind of I'm gonna do my best to explain this, but essentially taxes that only wealthy people um that would only apply to wealthy people. Like, like capital gains taxes? Capital gains, yeah. dividends yeah. have um, gone down, whereas yeah. taxes on the middle class then go up. So when you get people who can control politicians and kind of bend the rules to their benefit, you end up in, again, a, a very um, a very frightening place. Right. Well, at the same time, like when, when um, wages 
don't go up for you know exactly a, a generation. Yeah, we're getting paid twenty percent less than right. our parents were. Even if the tax rate dips a little bit, yeah, it actually it with inflation and how how much things cost, it doesn't feel like it. it actually end up still net behind, not net ahead. Um, and you know, corporate taxes, yes, they pay more in 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 dollars because but the rates are so much lower right and then you you allow people like you allow companies like apple to offshore profits and yeah they're, defer the profits not and alone. do everything right. that they can you to help build amazon's fucking buildings yeah and you know <laughs> you like move the money around right. with various trickery yeah, no, like, you know cities literally building the building for amazon yeah um it's strange yeah. to me that that isn't more in the public eye like I think that we we are in this place now um, where we just have massive tribalism, where like you have a bunch of people saying like it's the fucking Muslims' fault over mm-hmm. there, and then you have a bunch of people saying like well it's it's all the Trump supporters over here, mm-hmm. but there's very little um, spotlight being put on corporate personhood, campaign finance reform. Um, what I was talking about with these externalities. And, and that's something that I feel like we can all agree on, though. Like, whether you are left or right, you're getting screwed. Right. Well, I think um, it's there. So it's it's not... We can't blame reporting because it's out there. Um, we have just so... We have such a saturated media landscape. It's hard to parse, uh, you know... It's hard to find. It's, like, hidden in plain sight. Um and then you have the aspect of people believing or not believing, right? So you have this, sh- you know, shaming of the mainstream media culture, um, which I think is extremely destructive. You know, having worked for mainstream media for years and years, I can tell you, you know, and alternative media, I can tell you that mainstream media generally has a better fact-checking protocol, not a worse. So alternative media has less fact-checking than mainstream media. I can tell you that for a fact. So this idea that somehow mainstream, yes, is there corporate interests involved in media? Yes, but typically uh, the reporters and the editors that I've met are all very driven to get the story right and true and accurate and well told. So, um, unfortunately there's this effort to, uh, discredit, discredit media. And then there's uh, everybody else who's saying, you know, you can't believe, you can't believe what, uh, what you're told. And so then you end up with this self-righteous ignorance. And I think that's a big problem. So the reporting is out there. We know what's happening with, with companies getting, uh, you know, government support to build their buildings. We see the NFL teams getting, you know, with deciding that we're going to move our franchise. If you don't, you voters don't build me a stadium. We see that kind of crap and we accept it and we accept it because we're exploited. And I think that like, if you, if there is one place where you could say, um, politicians exploit the voter and exploit, um, kind of the instincts, the, the instincts of voters in a way that's self-destructive for America and for everyone involved. I don't think you could go criminal justice reform, I think is the perfect Petri dish for all of that. I mean, I think you see the tough on crime people who, uh, who are outraged by, by say violent crime in their community and, uh, and they want someone to pay for violent crime. And that's an instinct I think we all share. If, if, if violent crime had happened to anybody in our families and our friends, we'd, we'd want that person punished. 
Um, but when you look at that, take that issue and you see uh, politicians kind of piling on because that's the kind of issue that voters will get really riled up on and you can win elections with tough on crime. I'm tough on crime. That person's soft on crime. Um, and then you end up enacting these horrible mandatory minimum sentences, um, you know, without possibility of parole, it, it's, you know, minors being able to be uh, tried as adults and you and you kind of ratchet all that stuff up. What you end up with is actually a system where people where you actually don't rehabilitate people. They end up back in our in our streets and they commit more crimes. Recidivism rate goes up and the whole cycle actually gets worse. It doesn't get better because because we are not listening to the people who are studying it. And so that's whenever you get into this situation where um, politicians are seating on instinct and tuning out studies, uh, which is happening in a lot of areas, I think criminal justice reform is the, is the easiest place to see all of that. And it's also a place that we're tone deaf the most because uh, of em- our empathy has limits. So I think, uh, yeah, that's the perfect I noted a uh, quote that you wrote um, in your article, which will be out uh, when this podcast is released. Um, and what's the media outlet that you're writing? Longreads.com. So um, it was a quote by a woman named Carlton Daniel. He said, we're teaching people how to do time instead of teaching them how to do freedom. Yeah. And you, you had another one which said, tough on crime policies have always played well to voters because righteousness is more potent than empathy. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah, yes. man. And it, Carlton, Carlton uh, is a man. Carlton is, uh, has a crazy story. So Carlton was at home in... Uh, the wa- in Washington, this is all Washington, ba- Washington state base. So he's at home with his wife and his brother-in-law had gone out and robbed, uh, committed armed robbery. And in the course of the ar- armed robbery with, with two other, um, suspects, there was, uh, like the groping of one of the victims in this, uh, store. So there was a sexual assault charge kind of on top of all that. And so it's this ar- armed robbery with a sexual assault charge and, um, when the cops came to Carlton, they asked him to kind of roll over on his brother-in-law, and he didn't. So he basically was protecting his brother-in-law. He didn't rat him out, uh, even though he knew something about the crime. And so he was tried because there was a law on the books that said anybody who uh, you know, knows anything about the crime and fails to act uh, can be tried for the same exact crime. So it's like a Samaritan type, opposite of a good Samaritan law. Yeah, guilty by association. Yeah, yeah. And so he was convicted of the same crime as the assailants, and he never even left his house that night. And he was in jail for years and years and years. Uh, you know, I think it was over 20 years. And now he came out. He's general manager of a hydraulics company. He's um, leading the charge and helping uh, inmates who get out. He's um, breaking the cycle of recidivism. He is an incredible man, owns his own home, remarried. Uh, just an incredible man. And uh, he's one person in that story. I um, wrote down a quote that was, it's not in your story, but it's something that just stuck with me. And I think about it often whenever I'm learning about the prison industrial complex. And it's a quote by a Russian novelist named uh, Foyder Dostoevsky. Yes. Am I pronouncing that right? (laughs) Yes. We'll see. (laughs) Dostoevsky. Uh, Dostoevsky. Yes. The degree of civilization can be judged by entering its prisons. That's right. That's right. So um, I think we, there's a lot to talk about on this subject. Yeah. 
So if someone argues to you that tough on crime policies are what we need, what do you say to them? I would say that you're misinformed, that you don't actually, uh, the odds are you don't know what we need because you're more focused. Now, I wouldn't say this. To, I'm being hardcore now. Motherfucker, I yeah. just studied this <laughs> yeah. for months and did a deep no. investigative okay, so journalism you, piece on it. You know what I would say? I think, let me back up. Let me have a t- <laughs> take two. <laughs> Uh, tough on crime policies are what we need. What I would say is the evidence does not support that claim. And there's a lot of evidence. And, um, you know, let me back up. So I got into this story. Uh, it's, it, you know, the, the, the story is about looking for human rights in prisons. And why, why that Dostoevsky quote is so important is because um, if you, you know, if you look at the United States and what we stand for, and if you think we stand for human rights, and the opportunity for everybody to have us you know, believe in the American dream and the and we believe in rehabilitation and second chances pursuit um, to, you know, our, pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Then you, when you go into our prisons, you don't see that, you know, we don't. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you why. So, uh, Thailand is central to this as well. So, uh, some time ago I did a story on a group called the Free Burma Rangers. The Free Burma Rangers are also in, this, in the ethnic provinces of Myanmar. Um, there was uh, an American Special Forces sol- you know, kind of soldier who went to seminary and when he got out of the military. And he ended up in the, on, on the Burma border where he grew up. He grew up in Thailand. And his family grew up in Thailand. He was the son of a missionary family. Um, that moved there, you know, in the, in the sixties. And so when Thailand was, you know, still not as nearly as developed as it is today. And, uh, he ended up with deep roots in Thailand and he was there in the nineties when, uh, the military dictatorship in Myanmar was rolling over a region of Myanmar called Karin state. And so he went in and started to just do what he did best, which is help get people out of harm's way and, um, and get people to safety. And he ended up creating something called the Free Burma Rangers, which is he taught kind of army ranger techniques to uh, people that were in the rebel factions all over the ethnic provinces of Burma. And he's been integral into recording human rights abuses and to getting people out safely when their villages are getting torched, basically. So in, in doing this story on them, uh, this, I was out there in 2011, doing, at first in 2007, and then again in 2011, working uh, and reporting on the Free Burma Rangers. I, I got to know Lori Dawson, who is uh, the brother of Dave Eubank, who started the Free Burma Rangers. And she uh, is, is integral because she st- helped bring some of these f- rebel factions together and ended up creating a truce in Myanmar. And so I knew her from that reporting. And, uh, and one day I was on Facebook and I found, you know, these are evangelical Christians. And at the time I thought, you know, Dave Eubank, the head of Three Burma Rangers, actually registered Republican. Yeah, he believes in human rights and all of those things. And he's a registered Republican. And he was pretty conservative on a lot of stuff. Uh, Lori posted something about prison reform on Facebook. And I thought, that's so interesting. You know, this uh, evangelical Christian woman is interested in prison reform. I, I have to find out what happened. And so I got in contact with her. And what happened was somebody from her church was uh, arrested uh, for attempting to have her husband killed. So attempted solicitation of murder. And went through the whole plea agreement, pled out, pled, to, pled guilty, ended up in jail for 13 years. Um, but that's kind of the short version. The actual version is 
is there might be an entrapment case there. Uh, and you know, she only pled guilty because she thought she'd get out a little bit earlier in a light sentence. She got the book thrown at her. She got the most severe sentence she could get. And when she went to jail, Lori, who'd been helping her, uh, followed her into this rabbit hole of prison and saw that women's prisons were not a very nice place to be in a way that they weren't rehabilitating people. So a couple of things that she saw was, uh, for instance, in women's prisons, the, the stats are 90% of women in women's prison uh, have a des- domestic violence history, right? 90%. Well, there are no standalone domestic violence programs in the only one of two women's prisons in Washington where, she, where, where Karen was sent. And the other one doesn't have it either. So there's no standalone domestic violence program for, pe- for offenders who might have had a domestic violence history. It just doesn't exist. It's not there. Um, the trauma programs that are in place are volunteer-driven. They're not. And so if the volunteer leaves, that program is gone. Right. So there's some good programs going on, but there's some there's there's big holes. Right. And is it true, too, that the prisoners have to pay for certain therapies? Yes. So then if you do qualify, you have to qualify to a certain level of trauma to get any therapy at all for free. And if you if you and you, then you still have to pay and you get paid pennies, pennies on the on the hour. Yeah, it's a form of work. slavery that right. still exists. Right. Yeah. What was it? They get paid like 40 cents an hour yes. to work. Yes. And then th- like things like phone calls to family are two dollars yes. for 20 minutes. Yes. And uh, to, to even get therapy as a prisoner, you have to pay to get that therapy. Yes. And so rehabilitation is this is just non-existent, right. right? So that's one thing. Email every email costs a buck or buck 50. Um, you know, and then what really bothered Lori the most was strip search to see your friends and family. You get strip search. Now, does that make sense? Like you might say, well, they could hide something and bring it in. Well, women have deeper crevices to hide is strip search. Ain't going to find it. Right. And men swallow stuff when they want to get it in. And we know that the vast majority of, of contraband comes in from the guards, not the prisoners. I mean, that's all fact, like the people that work in prison versus the people that are in prison. So <clears throat> that's all fact. So, you know, she decided that she wanted to end strip search. And the reason she decided to, I mean, she, she saw all this going on and she's like, this is not, you know, this is a woman who grew up in Thailand who was uh, kind of first activated and becoming, became an activist because you know, there was the killing field situation going on in Cambodia. And she was literally on the Thai-Cambodian border and helping people who were refugees. And she saw that America at that time stood up for, for human rights. That was the idea. You know, in her mind, America believes in human rights. She's always advocated that. She's worked in Myanmar. She's been banging the drum. When there was a military dictatorship, she was saying, you know, you got to be America, this place that her parents were from and that, you know, she had this tie to, along with Thailand, is this place that, that shines the light and says, this is, you know, human rights are important. Look at our ideals. And now she sees in, uh, in Washington state, her own state, that we actually don't believe it. It's actually not true. Um, and, and she sees it because, uh, she sees women age 85 getting strip searched to come see somebody that, that loves them. Yeah. And that these techniques are put into place to humiliate people. It's more and, and humiliation There are techniques to put into, to control people. Right. It's the same reason why TSA searches people. It's not because they think they're going to find some weed that you're taped to your balls or something. It's because they're trying to show you that they have the power to do that if they want to. Yeah. I mean, um, 
I'm not going to go there on TSA because I don't know that situation, but certainly there in, in with prison security scenarios and all security scenarios, right. it's about eliminating the possibility of anything, right? So their safety and security kind of drives out any sort of um, logic, right? When or humanity. Like, or humanity. And so that's really what's happening. Right. So um, she learns, though, that in Thailand, a princess in Thailand who went to Cornell Law School, um, came back and worked as a prosecutor in Thailand after Cornell Law School. She's a princess. And, and um, she discovers how women are being treated in Thai prison. And she sees that uh, a lot of the reason that women are in prison is, is either due to domestic violence or drug addiction or you know prostitution, which is still related to domestic yeah. violence often. Most rapists were sexually assaulted as kids themselves. Right, right. Well, these are women, so right. yeah, yeah. I'm just saying yeah, that yeah. this is, the, it's, it's how our psyches work, right? The right. people who were abused as kids end up abusing others. Right, or they end up in jail for prostitution or, yeah, yeah other reasons or, you know. So anyway, she sees that... Uh, Thailand is famous for, you know, look at the, the, the commanders would not let the boys die because family is paramount in Thailand. It's like sacred. Family is sacred in Thailand in a way that we like to say it is here, but that actually is there. And, and so, uh, she's saying, if we really believe that, then why are we taking babies out of mother's arms in prison? Why, why don't we have mother baby units in prison? Why are we strip searching women? in prison. Why women who've been domestically abused or raped, why are they getting strip searched in this rough way? Um, and she created this list of rules called the Bangkok rules that she got passed and adopted by the UN as the benchmark for human rights in prison, in women's prison. They're called the Bangkok rules. Lori learns about this and she decides I'm going to make Washington state adhere to the Bangkok rules. And so she, you know, the story that I'm telling is through the eyes of Lori as she follows her friend into prison and her attempt to make the Washington state prison system, um, adhere to international human rights standards. In the end, um, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but she is able to take on strip search, uh, as the one thing that she's kind of fighting for the most. If she can eliminate strip search in at least one place, it, it becomes a victory. Um, but you know, a couple takeaways from, from, you know, beyond mandatory minimum sentences and all the rest, a couple of takeaways, um, in Washington state, women get $40, men and women, they get $40 when they left out, they get a bus ticket and $40 when they get out of prison. Yeah. They can take any money they saved up working pennies on the hour, but some of them don't have that much saved $40 and a bus ticket. That's their, re, you know, and, and that's it. And if they qualify for a halfway house at a reduced rent, then they get that. But it costs money to reserve that. So we're not setting people up to succeed on the outside, which is where Carlton Daniels comes in and people like him. But we don't have it standardized, right? That's the point. Like, it's not, it's not actually, it's not standardized. We're relying on, it's externalized. It's externalized. But why is it externalized when it's a state issue? How can, who's, who's the state externalizing it to? the streets, you know, and so that's one key component. One key takeaway is that we're not setting people up to succeed once they get out. And then you create this crime cycle. Yeah. Right? Revolving door. It's a revolving door. And, um, the reason that that's true, I mean, that, another, another great takeaway is it, where you can see, you know, if we're looking through a human rights, uh, lens or not is, uh, gang members, right? So if you look at you know, boy soldiers, when the boy soldier story broke in the nineties and 
you know, boy soldiers were on Oprah. Boy soldiers were getting rehabilitated by UN money and, and American, you know, State Department money. And it good, it's good because they were kidnapped and they were drugged and they were put in place and they were killing and they were dying. And so, you know, we should rehabilitate these guys. Well, uh, gay members are indoctrinated by adults and armed at 13 as well. But we don't treat them that way. Why? Well, partly because they're committing crimes on American soil. That's probably why. And so we have a lower empathy. Fucking kid broke into my house. He's trying as an adult, bro. That's right. But the the bigger reason is that we don't we don't examine the way we treat our kids and our fellow citizens in America through human rights lens. We have a civil rights lens. We have the Constitution. Everything is everything goes back to the Constitution. Right. It's not doesn't go back to this higher ideal of human rights, this higher ideal of human rights that we helped promote overseas through the U.N., doesn't exist in this country. You can see it everywhere in the criminal justice system. You can see it how um, communities of color, especially black communities, are policed. You could see you could see it in the way they're tried, in the way uh, stu- children are tried as adults for crimes. In Germany, you're not tried as an adult for a crime unless you're over 21 years old. Even 18, 19 year olds aren't tried as an adult. You know why? Because our brains in the logic area, they're not fully developed. In yeah, terms your frontal of, neocortex yeah, isn't developed until you're 25. Until you're 25. You know who gets that right? Rental car companies, but not the criminal justice system. Here, if, 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 you, if you commit a terrible act, you're in, you could be in jail for life or even on death row from the age of 15, 16 in some states. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way we do it. Why do we do it that way? Because it's, it all goes back to the Constitution, how the Constitution kind of has created everything in this country, right? Everything has to, be, has, to go, has to be pursuant to that. And so we believe in civil rights. We don't believe in human rights. So that's why, you know, when we look at segregation and some of the civil rights victories, which we should celebrate, they're all about dismantling the legal instruments, right? They're, they're not about, hey, we have, yes, did Martin Luther King talk about ideals? Yes, he did. But the way he fixed the problem, the way, the way civil rights activists uh, fixed the problem was to, was to take apart the legal in- instruments that created the problem in the first place. That's a problem because the Constitution itself is a document that was written for and by white supremacists. It's the facts. I mean, that's just the facts, right? You know, there's a there's a, a three fifths compromise in the Constitution that is that that uh, said that black people, slaves, were only worth three fifths a value of a of a white landowner, right? That's in there. Okay, why did why is that in there? Because that's how you got the southern states to sign off on the Constitution. So that alone is the reason we have the constitution. So you can't ever take that away. You know, that, that was never paid, that was never fully papered over by emancipation. It just never went away. That's always been there, right? There's always been there. So the constitution is a document that lays out some good things and some very bad things. And, and we are now living in the wake of that and everything is pursuant to that. So we don't have a higher value of human rights here in, in, in the United States. We actually don't. Uh, we, we believe in civil rights, not human rights. Well done, man. What do you think about uh, the privatization of prisons? We were talking about profiteering in various industries, and you had some great points in your article about um, how these private industries will slither their way into prisons and make money off of these workers. But I I would like you to explain that. So um, I don't talk about private prisons, but there are private companies. Uh, JPay is one of them. JPay is how most e- is all the email exchange from 
Washington inmates to out the outside world for me to communicate with the very variety of inmates that I did communicate with. It was through JPay, and I had to pay a certain amount, and they have to pay a certain amount to go back and forth. We buy these stamps, um, so that's one uh, company. There's another company that handles all the um, the canteens within prison. So women have to buy their own tampons. They have to buy their own extra toilet paper. Women, women um, use more toilet paper than men in the outside world. One Bangkok rule is that all should be supplied for the prisoner. Well, not it's not how it works in the United States. You have to buy the, the prisoner supplements themselves. Men and women get the same amount of that kind of thing. And the tampons, they don't get at all. So um, so that's a private company that handles the ca- canteens. The phone and is, is another private company that handles the phones, and they get all that money. So it's all profit. And and there's no reason for it. So that's one idea. Private prisons in general, I will say that private pr- private prisons have scaled back somewhat. So pr- pr- you know, I think it was probably seven years ago ish when private prisons first started getting scaled back. Because even Republicans were saying, "Well, this is a waste of money." You know, you, you, there's already X amount of money in the prison pot, and if you're going to take a percentage of that and just give it to a private contractor. Um, then you're wasting some money that could be used other ways. So that's, it's scaled back. There still exists private prisons. And now, you know, on the border with the family separation, which is a great example of how we don't believe in human rights in this country. The fact that, you know, yes, do some of us, yes. I don't want to paint all the picture. Do some of us believe in human rights? Yes. I think the majority of us believe in human rights. But as, a, as, a, as an organization in the United States of America, proves time and time again that we have blind spots when it comes to human rights. And the family separation is a great a great example of that and there they are building more and more detention centers on the border and a lot of those are private so do you think that all uh private all basically ability anyone's ability to make money off of a prisoner do you think that that should all be made illegal you know, I didn't look at that enough. I mean, I, sometimes a contractor is probably the best person right. to do a job because they have the expertise. So I'm not going to say the state has to do right. everything. I'm just thinking about incentives, right? If, we're, if we want to live in a society where we are incentivizing people to truly be rehabilitated yeah. and get back on their feet. And you, know, you screwed up when you were 18 years old. You went into a house and you, you stole some stuff. Maybe even you killed someone. You're yeah. a dumb kid to give that person a second chance in a society how do we how do we give them a second chance we incentivize them to do that we set up systems where they can win um so what would you do they're the bangkok initiatives So, so, so in men's prison there's something called the mandela rules okay and in women's prison there's the bangkok rules and um those are the two benchmarks that the UN has adopted as the human rights benchmarks that every country in the world should adhere to. So um, in Norway, it's a good example, right? Norway, men's prisoners, women's prisoners probably too, but men, Norway prison system, um, they, you, you, you fish, you cook your own meals, you have your own key to your own cabin, you learn how to take, look after yourself. Uh, you're empowered to look after yourself. Uh, we don't do that. You know, we, we treat people like children. We control their every move. We control their every impulse. Um, and you, you, uh, we cram them in sard- like sardines. It's very different, right? We're, we're not doing it like Norway. North Dakota has started to do a pilot program to mimic the Norway program. And they're going to end up with a better, lower recidivism rate. Um, so I think that's one way. We can look at the way we house prisoners. Um, we can look at uh, the way we educate prisoners and the op- opportunities for education. 
the opportunities for counseling. You know, one expert that I talked to said that the minute somebody comes into the prison system, they should go through triage. They should be evaluated uh, emotionally and psychologically and given a, a suite of programs that they're looked after and so that we're really tracking someone's rehabilitation. Some people are not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to rehabilitate everybody. Um, that's just the way it is. Sure. Know? Yeah. Like I'm not saying everybody's an angel. Yeah. And I'm not credible in saying that there shouldn't be people who are not allowed to be in society. Right. There are certain people who are sick in the mind and sorry, you're not, well, you're not on the team anymore. Right. You're not able to operate in this community. We, we need to have prisons. I'm not, but, a, I'm not a prison abolitionist, no, but, but no. there can be things like earn time where uh, depending on how you're performing in prison, you can earn time off your sentences. Yeah. Um, there can be a better way to re-entry re-entry needs to be completely reevaluated. And, and, um, and then there's, uh, um, there's, there's ju- where you can actually seek the forgiveness of, of the victim in a case. Um, when you seek the uh, forgiveness of the victim, I don't talk about this in the story, but that's something Lori really believes in where you're, uh, where you go back and you have this, uh, I got it. There's a term for it. I'm totally blanking on, but it's a type of justice where you're actually, uh, apologizing and seeking forgiveness and you bring together the victim and the perpetrator. And there's a lot of powerful, there's a lot of power there. I have a friend who went through the 12 step program for alcoholism. And he was talking about that step where you have to, um, contact everyone who you have wronged. And he said, it's a really tough one. Oh yeah, man. You know, you call people up and say, Hey, you know, you might not remember me, but uh, this is something I did to you years ago and feel really guilty about it. There's a, a true power in making those kinds of calls. You know, the real tragedy in the American prison system is that, uh, in the sixties, fifties and sixties, uh, we actually believed in rehabilitation in our prison system in the fifties and sixties. We Democrats and Republicans, talked about rehabilitation in our prisons. And then what happened is some science came out saying rehabilitation was a myth. And that science was cherry-picked. It wasn't actual real data. And But some conservative lawmakers who were looking at a way to save money and you know the tough-on-crime crowd came out and said, see, rehabilitation is a myth, and started slashing all, all the programs and prisons that were helping with rehabilitation. They all were now looked at through a different lens. And you got the Ronald Reagan era where all these tough on crime mandatory minimums started to come down. You got the Clinton crime bill, which is a you know, looking back is a horrible, horrible thing bloated the prison system. And you see the system go from, uh, you know, double, triple, quadruple in size over the course of five, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And now it's 10 times the size that it ever was. And we have the highest amount of prisons, prisoners in, in, in the, in the world, we have the highest percentage of our population in prison and we have the highest number of prisoners in prison. Yeah. And there's something wrong with that. It's not because we're the most violent society. There's something wrong with that. Yeah. I'm thinking about, um, my buddy Wallace J. Nichols, you know him? Oh yes. You know, you know, yeah. him? I don't know him. I don't Dude, know. Him, I would but... love to do a, th- a three way podcast with you guys sometime. Yeah. That'd be really fun. Yes. Um, but he talks a lot about blue mind mm-hmm. and red mind. And he argues f- that, the water can help increase empathy, wellness, um, oxytocin, mm. all these good things, mm. dopamine, all this stuff that we want. And red mind is 
tough on crime, you know, scaring people. Right. And I, th- I think that one of the big issues, and we're seeing this now more than ever, is that politicians speak to people's red mind, try and scare them. And that gets us into this reptilian way of thinking where we don't want to empathize. We don't want to think about what it would be like to be in that person's shoes. And we decide that there are throwaway humans. I think that I, I, I know that's a really simple way to look at it, but a lot of the stories that I read and the TV that I watch now, I, I think, are they speaking to my blue mind or my red mind right now? And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about your article is I think that you, you it was very well laid out, very well organized, ton of important facts, and you were speaking to the goodness in people. Hmm. And that does take more time. Yeah. It, well, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I, I just want your listeners to know I'm much mo- more coherent on the page than I am in written in, in, in spoken word on the page. I make more sense. Trust no, me. This is, I'm having a blast, man. Um, but uh, I think that's true. You know, the blue pill, red pill thing. It's actually pretty funny that you say that. I, I think it is true. And um, I will say that I think it's always been the case. So, uh, you know, look at look at Hitler and the Holocaust. That was all playing to fear. Um, you can look through all travesty in human history. Almost all of it has to do with controlling population through fear. We're supposed to be getting better. We're supposed to be evolving. We're supposed to be getting to the point where we trust one another and we love one another more, not less. And I think we probably are getting there on an individual basis. It doesn't look like it when you take the flyover from the, from the, you know, national level or even for any sort of, through any sort of political lens, it doesn't look that way. Yeah. But I think we are getting there. I think that's why people seized on the Thai cave story, because here was this story where soldiers, um, experts, volunteers of all stripes, international, really a truly international effort came together to save children. And we loved it. And the story went nuts because it's a happy story. It's a positive story. And it's, it's what we're capable of as humans. It's, we are capable of radical change. We are capable of radical acts of empathy and love. Um, and we prove it time and time again, and we need to prove it now soon. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Alexander Skolzenheinzen. Uh, or something. So, or something. It's, it's, a great, it's a great quote. It's a good quote, isn't it? <laughs> it is a I good think quote. about it a lot. I Blue mind, it. red mind. I also um, wanted to note when you were talking about the Thai cave story that you... Um, you leaned on your knowledge as a diver. I think that as a journalist, that's, that's a really intelligent thing to do because you're drawing on this, this accumulated body of knowledge to go for a new story. You weren't going for a, a, a beat on it that you really didn't know about. Yeah. You ha- there was a reason why you were telling that story. Well, um, that's why, I mean, that's why, uh, uh, to be honest, I was, I was super busy on, on another book project. And the only reason I even did it was because outside asked me to do that. And the only reason they asked me to do that is because they knew I had that. So it's, it's, I think that just comes with, um, being around a while yeah, and persevering, keeping the lights on. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that comes to you naturally, but for people who want to become journalists, writers, storytellers, write about what you know, that, lean on your strengths and, and use that to, um, tell the story. And it comes down to access, right? right. If, you're, if you are around a world and a part of a world and around a world enough, then when something like this comes up, um, and it's a small enough world, 
I'm going to get, I'm able to get to somebody who was there. And that's really the, the, the only reason I had the story is because I was able to get to the guy that, that found the T junction. And, and the only reason I was able to do that is because I've been around in, in this world long enough to where, uh, I had that access. It all comes down to access. Yeah. Dude, thank you so much. Adam Skolnick, my, fire on the mic. My pleasure. Um, where can people get in touch with you and read your work? AdamSkolnick.com is my website. I'm at Adam Skolnick on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, brother. Yeah, I love it, man. And I so appreciate you being willing to read some of my writing from time to time. Oh, it's yeah, man. I love it. a helpful editor for me. I love <laughs> it. You. I love it. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Indonesia by the Getaway Dogs. These guys listen to the podcast and they sent me some tunes. If you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of the show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf. Once again, thank you to everyone who donates on Patreon. This is an ad-free podcast and I so appreciate all of you who donate even just a couple bucks a month. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. Or uh, click the link in the bio below called Buy Me a Cup of Coffee on Patreon. Uh, Once again, this is the second interview with Adam. So you can go back to number 59 if you want to hear more. And with that, I hope that you all have a wonderful day. And I will see you next week. Much love. Oh